And welcome back to another special edition of the Michael Deacon program. And yes, my name is Michael Deacon, the voice of the voiceless. I look forward to once again serve you those sounds of salvation. First time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a very different kind of show. A place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity. Live and direct right now on YouTube. And later, of course, rebroadcasted on terrestrial radio. If you can't even believe that, our guest this evening is Mr. Michael Alago, former A&R executive and talent booker. Michael was responsible for signing a number of bands who became household names, such as White Zombie and Metallica, The Misfits, Cindy Lauper, and many more. You can watch his documentary on Netflix titled, Who the Fuck is That Guy? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again, on a night like this. The time of Armageddon is here. The hurting of civilization. Oh, it's true. Only the strong will survive. And it's great to see all of you in the chat room once again. I hope you're doing well, wherever you are out there. Much love and respect. And as always, Mr. Mike Hideous, also live and direct. Matter of fact... Let's bring them in, and I believe Michael and Mr. Mike Hideous are now ready. What, what's going on, guys? Michael's muted. There he is. Oh wait. Do we have him muted? I don't. I don't have him muted. Do you? He I might. might. Mute, he might have muted himself. I think he might have muted himself. Yes, but yes, he's he's here though, <laughs> but muted for whatever reason. And Mike, how are you, by the way? I'm doing all right. Thank you, Mr. Deacon. How's things with you? I can't complain. Doing well. Keeping the doctor away. Good. Michael, are you there? Uh, hello there. There he is. <laughs> Michael, how are you, by the way? I'm pretty good this evening. I'm just uh, sitting in my Chelsea apartment in self-quarantine. Um, I like my solitude. So, so uh, doing okay this evening. Very nice. Very nice. And of course, you are the star of your own documentary series on Netflix. Who the fuck is that guy? And who came up with that title? Sure. Um, the director, Drew Stone, came up with the title, uh, Who the Fuck is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. Uh, it came up because for many, many years, you know, he saw me at shows in the audience, backstage, and that's exactly what he would say to people <laughs> before he knew I had an A&R position in the music business. So uh, that's what he said. Who the fuck is that guy? So it's stuck. It's clever. It's funny. Um, I think it makes you want to actually go see the movie. Word. And uh, so that's how it came about, because of Drew Stone, our fearless leader, director. Very nice. Yeah, it was actually Mike here who mentioned your name to me, and I kept thinking, you know, I've heard the name before, but who the fuck is that guy? <laughs> there you go. 
Yeah, so it makes sense. And I enjoyed it, by the way, first of all. It, oh, it, oh, I loved it. so much. Yeah, I was just telling Mike here how much you and Mike Hideous both remind me of of a couple of my close friends growing up. So I connected with both of you right away. Oh, cool. That's very nicely put, Michael. Yeah, I mean, I'm watching Michael and, you know, talking to you all these years. I thought both of you were both individuals I would definitely get drunk with and raise hell <laughs> with. So. And, and, you know, the funny thing is, this is another show that we're doing that has a eighth. We're doing another third Michael show. So I love it. It gets a little, little confusing. <laughs> so Michael, Michael A, Michael D and Michael Z. <laughs> there you go. And all the letters of the alphabet. It's good stuff. But I will refer to you as Mr. Alago. Mr. Alago. Out of respect. Sure, out of why respect. Not? Yeah, so what exactly was it about music for you that actually made you get so entrenched with it? Uh sure. Um, you know, I say this at the beginning of my book that just came out, I am Michael Alago. Uh, it's called uh, I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death. I believe that I came out of the womb loving music. At a very early age, um, living in Brooklyn, there were these television shows like Don Cornelius' Soul Train, um, Dick Clark's American Bandstand, and Don Kirshner's uh, Midnight Special. And I was attracted to the variety of music that I heard on TV. Um, Music was just something that tickled my ears and my heart. And um, later on, I just kind of thought, wow, I love music so much that I want to do something in the music business. But, you know, in watching play things like uh, Dick Clark's American Bandstand, was I going to rate a record with Dick Clark on Soul Train? Was I going to be a Soul Train dancer? You know, <laughs> at 14 years old, what does that mean to a kid from Brooklyn? I didn't know, but I knew I felt like I wanted to be involved in music in some shape, way, or form. That happened a couple years later when I was 19 years old. I was going to School of Visual Arts. I was working part-time in a pharmacy on Astor Place. I was taking lunch one day, walking down East 11th Street, and I saw a beautiful building. It was Art Deco, and it was uh, formerly called Casa Galicia. It was a Spanish dance hall. On the door was just a little 8x10 white piece of paper that said video club opening. So I just thought, well, I'm going inside. So I went inside, and I marveled at how beautiful this Art Deco building was. And um, there was a man in the balcony, and I referred to him at first as the Wizard of Oz. And it was a man, a man named Jerry Brandt. And Jerry Brandt, which I didn't know at the time, was responsible for the nightclub, the Electric Circus in the 60s. He worked in the William Morris um, uh, uh, mailroom along with David Geffen. Uh, Jerry looked after Muhammad Ali and Sam Cooke back in the day. He discovered Carly Simon and the voices of East Harlem. And Joe Bryant. I didn't know any of this. Uh, so he asked me what I wanted. I said I wanted a job. He said, do you have a resume? I said no. He was humored by that. I don't know why. So he called me up to his office. We started talking about all kinds of music. Um, from the Great American Songbook back in the day 
to what was going on on Top 40 Radio and in the New York underground club scene. He liked me and he said, kid, I'm going to give you a job. You're going to answer my phone. You're going to get my mail and you're going to get my lunch. And I just thought at 19 years old, wow, I think I'm in the music business. And that, <laughs> was, like and that. that, was, and that was really the beginning of it all. That's pretty wild. And you were nineteen. Uh, you were nineteen yeah. years old. That is correct. Wow, that's awesome. That is pretty awesome. And I must now, say, Michael, oh, before I before I, I let you take over here, Micah, I must say, you know, with all these things going on around the world, and of course New York City specifically, you know, I'm sure you've taken the time to realize that, you know, these kind of are the end times, Michael. Mr. Alago, rather. And, you know, there won't be another Michael Alago, just like there won't be another Metallica. You're kind of a part of a dying breed, Michael. Well, um, I don't know about that, really. I mean, there will, if, if there is going to still be a music business, that's what I mean, right? There will always, there will always be A&R people, uh, because A&R, artist and repertoire, is the most important part of a record company if you don't have if that department doesn't produce great artists and great songs then what do you got as for metallica that kind of special breed of artist doesn't happen all the time um now of course music is cyclical and there are like-minded artists like them but uh, they are truly still in 2020 one of a kind 36 years later. Right, right. And they're still awesome. They're still playing stadium. And um, how wonderful is that? Oh, That's I amazing. Love it. it really is. I, I, I'm referring to the music industry in general. The business seems to not be as big as it once was because of the internet. That's where I was sort of leading to Ah, sorry about That's that. Okay. okay. Well, you know, yes, it's a very different music business. I was in the industry professionally from 1980 to 2005. Uh, 22 of those years was working at record companies and uh, signing artists, mostly at Electra Records and Geffen Records. Back then, people were actively buying vinyl and CDs, and uh, uh, that's, that's how you got your music. Record companies were actively uh, working records to radio. They were marketing, publicity, and promotion departments. Uh, it, was a, it, was, it was a very big deal. So fast forward, um, and I'll, I can only speak for myself, of course. So in 2005, after 25 years of doing this, I was not feeling well again, and I didn't want the stress. Right. And it was the beginning of the internet, and it wa I noticed a lot of file sharing, mm -hmm. downloading, basically stealing. And for me, I just didn't want to be part of that. And we could fast forward just one more time to present day. People don't buy records like they used to at all. We have all these platforms like a, a Spotify and a, what is that? I was going to call it Pantera. A Pandora. <laughs> That's and, a better name. Um, you know, whatever those <laughs> platforms are. So things are streamed more than anything else. Absolutely. And, you know, well, yeah, and I guess it's just the way of the world. You know, my hope is that 
all those records that get streamed, I'm just hoping the artists still get paid get what paid, they're doing. Because yeah. it's always the artist that suffers in the end. It's always the artist that gets paid last. So, um, you know, I've seen a resurgence of vinyl. I think vinyl is the greatest thing ever. The warmth and the, and the sound of vinyl is just beautiful amen to that and uh i get and i guess i'm just kind of going off on a tangent right now that's okay no <laughs> okay. that's fine no i agree with you the quality of vinyl is something that's um very pleasant to the ears oh absolutely you know sometimes when there are cds that are mastered and you don't really get the absolute correct mastering the, the compression of CDs hurt my teeth and hurt my wow. ears. <laughs> With you but, on that. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, CDs are wonderful. Sure, compact disc. But when you get that 12-inch record with artwork uh, and you just put it on the stereo, there really is a, a, a big um, – there's a warmth about that. Right. And there's a, there's a roundness, a bigness. You hear literally every instrument that's being played, and it's just it's – just, it's so marvelous to my ears, vinyl. No doubt. Yeah. Do you think do you think that a lot of artists are going to suffer as a result? Because in my interpretation of what's happening now with the music industry is oh that you, the the only way you can make money is by touring and selling your own merchandise. I mean, it, it seems to me that the record industry is they're not selling CDs. They're not selling anything in a market where people are, would buy a record from an artist to hear the music. Now all you got to do is turn on the computer. So my, I guess what I'm trying to say is you, you've got big bands out there, uh, bands like, uh, you know, Marilyn Manson, Metallica, Pantera, all these big bands that are, that are, are, are at the level that they're, they're probably more than likely going to stay at. But for other bands that are, you know, Un, undiscovered what what's the future look like for them to you i think it's difficult i think it's um we, i think we're at a place now almost like back in the day i say diy do it yourself um because records aren't selling like they used to at all young bands have to know that if you are dedicated to your craft and it's the only thing you want to do, then you better be great at what you do. And you go out and you play live and you have your own CD. And if you have a few bucks, make a video that you could put on all social media platforms. And you have T-shirts and you have buttons and stickers and hoodies and so on. And that's the way the young bands have to go out these days. It's tough, but you know what? It's not impossible either. Um, and yes, uh, if you're not at that level of a band playing an 18,000-seat arena that sells out, not only are you making that money, but most likely a lot of those people in the 18,000-seater is going to buy a a cap, a beanie, a, a, a CD, a sweatshirt, uh, your merch. So, you know, it's a lot easier for those artists who are already at that top level tier, A-list artists. But um, 
it's difficult. It's just, it just is. That's, it's the way of the world right now. Um, you have to just slug it out if, if, if you're young and dedicated. There yeah. really is no way. It's like, it's like oh, I think it was a, like a black flag book that Glenny Friedman took all the photographs for. And it was just called Get in the Van. Yes, Get in the and van. that's what mm-hmm. you got to do. Get in the van, you know? I believe that book was on Henry Rollins's, uh, his, his publishing label. I believe uh, so, 1361. Yes, yes. So, Michael, um, let's talk about your film. Um, I saw the film, oh, golly, uh, I think I saw it in 2017? Probably, that's when it, uh, it started on yeah. Netflix, yes. So, um I came across it completely by accident. I, I was on uh, at the time. I was with this w- girl, if you want to call her that. Oh no! Um, I, <laughs> I uh, and we. She told me she's like, "Oh, did you know Michael Alago's got a film now? You should check it out." I'm like, yeah, definitely. And I watched this film, and boy, oh boy, it, it brought me back to when I was a young punk rocker uh, exploring New York City for the first time. And the great thing about your film is that. You had mentioned so many people and talked about so many different locations within New York City, uh, you know, clubs, and and it just brought back so many great memories. Oh, and I, how wonderful. It was really wonderful. It was. And, and I loved watching the film. And for anybody out there who doesn't – hasn't seen the film or doesn't know about it, it's called Who the Fuck is That Guy? And I highly recommend if you're into music – Check this movie out because it's fantastic. It's a documentary and it's absolutely grand. Um, and so from there, you now you now you've got a book out. You've got a book out called "I Am Michael Alago," and uh, I mean, so explain to me. Normally, I, I've always felt like there was always the book that came out first, then the movie. But in this case, we got the movie that came out first, and now the book. Tell us a little bit about the book, Michael. Well, I think in life there are really no rules. And things happen when they're supposed to happen. Um, like, you know, when Drew Stone said to me, uh, I'd like to make a film about your life. I took about three years. We did it on zero budget, a Kickstarter budget. And uh, once it got on Netflix, it just kind of exploded. Like people from all over the world were seeing it. And just so the audience knows it's actually called who the fuck is that guy the fabulous journey of michael alago right. it's easier to find when you put the whole long crazy title in there and so yes from the success of that movie a small book company reached out to me called backbeat books and they wanted to know do i have more stories and being <laughs> in the music business that long being out every night of my life for 25 years, of course I had more stories. So in a way, it's a bit, the book is a bit of a companion piece to the movie. But yes, this, I just am able in a book to dig a lot deeper than you can in the 75 minutes or 80 minutes of a film. Right. So yes, there are some similar stories, but um, 
like I said, I just dug deeper and I found and remembered because I kept journals my whole life. I don't know how I knew to do that. I just did. Um, that it just, it, it's just uh, more of my life. It's about the 25 years as an A&R executive. It's about addiction. It's about recovery. It's about having, acquiring HIV and full-blown AIDS. And, you know, I lived through all that. And I've recovered from drugs and alcohol almost 13 years now. And in my life, I am grateful that I wake up every day. So my book starts off in Brooklyn. And the last two chapters are Blanche, my mom, and Gratitude. <laughs> and uh, so the book came out March 25th. So it's been out about three weeks. And it's on Amazon.com. Uh, and uh, it's just, it, it's been uh, these last, I don't know, a few years um, has been just this really exciting journey. Um, and it just gets me out there in a big way. And I knew when Drew was making the film, I didn't want it to be like a heavy metal film. I didn't want it to be just about music because if he was going to spend that kind of quality time with me, we had to tell the whole truth, whether I liked it or not. Because when you tell the whole truth, people respond to that. And when you tell the whole truth, perhaps you're actually helping someone out there who doesn't know how to ask for the help yet. Wonderful. Oh, yes. I just want to I, quickly uh, ask really, really fast here. After the documentary came out, Michael, Mr. Mm -hmm. Lago, um, did you have people coming up to you at all? Like they did already <laughs> in the film. Well, you know, it gets funny that you ask that. Because I, I was a behind-the-scenes person, really, even though I did go out every night and people knew I was Guy from Electra Records. Uh, but once the film came out, yes, all sorts of people snapped me on the street. And, of course, they said, are you that guy? And I would say yes. And one day, this was very sweet, I was getting on the subway, the 8th Avenue subway at 14th Street, and there was an MTA worker down on the tracks, and he was working, and he looked up, and he went, dude, are you Michael Alago? And I was like, yes. He said, wait a minute. I have my iPhone in my pocket, and my wife loves your movie. Can we take a picture together? I was like, nice. sure. So he jumped up from the tracks onto the platform, and he said, well, you know, like, I'm a little dirty. I said, honey, worse has happened to me. That's right. So we took the picture, and he was grateful, and I laughed, and I was grateful, and he went back, jumped back down on the tracks, and just continued with his work. So things like that happen to me all of the time. Oh, and my. it's always very kind, and it's always that people love the movie, different parts of the movie and they just want to photograph, which is really lovely. Definitely. That, that is very nice. Uh, Mike, go ahead. Now I, I got a question about something that I saw in the film and, and this, I was so taken by this because uh, I absolutely love the guy we're about to talk about. You, Spit it out. <laughs> <laughs> you, you booked a show. I believe it was at the Ritz. Uh, for when Johnny Lydon of Pill, uh, P-I-L, came uh, – obviously the Sex Pistols had broken up and Pill came to America and you booked their show, I believe, at the Ritz. And from what I understand, there was a riot that took place afterwards, sure. right? 
I'll take, well, it's a well, it's a very well documented evening. Um, I talk about it in the movie, and I definitely expand on it in the book. Um, it was a Friday and Saturday night in May of 1981. The rock group Bow Wow Wow was supposed to come and play. The two evenings were sold out. A couple days, maybe maybe only two days prior to the show, uh, Malcolm McLaren called me up on the phone and said, we're not coming. And I was like, uh, what are you talking about? You're not coming. He said, well, Annabelle's mother doesn't want her to come to the States. She's underage. I said, Malcolm, you booked the show months ago and she was still underage. <laughs> I have no idea what this is all about, really. We, the Ritz will pay for her mom to escort her to the States, but you got to come. And they said, well, we're not coming. I said, send back the deposit. I don't think they ever sent back the deposit. I now had to think very quickly. I don't remember how I knew that John Lydon and Pill were um, in New York City on a press junket um, for their album Flowers of Romance. They were in the head of publicity uh, department, Liz Rosenberg's office at Warner Brothers. I don't remember the exact details, but I called Warner Brothers. I asked to speak to John. I explained the story. He said, we're here on a press junket. We have no instruments. I said, well, we could do this to tapes. We could do it. We can get Keith Levine, a Prophet 5 synthesizer. We could program 45 minutes worth of music in there. Please do it for me. <laughs> Meanwhile, I have never met John in my whole life. I had, I had John. Keith Levine and Jeanette come to my office, Jerry Brandt's office at the Ritz. And we had like a powwow about it. It sounded like it was going to be very interesting. They wanted it to be like a performance art piece. But of course, once the audience hears John Lydon, a.k.a. Johnny Rotten, everyone thinks it's going to be like this balls out rock and roll event. <laughs> Night of the show. It's pouring rain outside. People get into the venue late. Uh, the show starts. Now, the Ritz is known, the nightclub, the Ritz on East 11th Street, is known for this 30-foot white screen that they have in front of the stage. Keep in mind, it's the beginning of MTV. Every record company is sending us their videos to play on that screen. Public Image Limited wanted to use that screen as part of the performance. So they were behind the screen. There were beautiful white lights shining on the screen. So all you saw was shadows. Um, the audience was not taking too kind to it because John <laughs> didn't want to come out from behind the screen. He taunted and teased the audience. The next thing you know, chairs, tables, bottles are flying. Oh my about God. 18 minutes in, um, about 18 minutes into the show, we have to just call it a day. Because it, it's mayhem right now. And um, John thought it was funny. Uh, I was a nervous wreck. My boss, Jerry Brandt, was closing down the venue that night. Um, it was almost like a bit of mass hysteria. And back in the day, you know, when there were these kind of, if you will, punk rock events, security really still didn't know how to deal with the young people. So it was a mess. Um so that was the event. I mean, really, it was a shot heard around the world. That night, I think on late night news, it was all over the news. The next morning, uh, Tim Summer at Sounds Magazine did a whole feature on it. Uh, the New Musical Express, the Melody Maker, everybody, like 
blew it all out of proportion because it was blown out of proportion anyway. And um, that was the event. But the wonderful thing that I'm sorry, one last little thing. The one thing that happened out of that was my 39 year friendship with John Lydon. And we're still friends, as you knew from see from him being in my documentary. And we have never had a bad word with each other. That's wonderful. And I tell you, I absolutely love John Lydon. I I have every pill record that's ever been released. Oh, good. And I, I absolutely love him. I, you know, years ago when I used to be a journalist for a music magazine, I tried to interview him, uh-huh. but he turned, he, he turned me down. Uh, he was like, yeah, you, you wouldn't understand it. <laughs> the publicist told me, but, um, so yeah, that, that's one of my favorite parts of the whole film is, is, is the whole, that whole uh, event that took place at the Ritz with you booking pill. It sure. just blew me away. Great. Oh, well, great. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you, you could watch the movie again. You could read the book. It's all there. You're oh, very I'm sure. You're, you're very kind, Mr. Alago. I would have been furious. Furious at what? The event? Yes. Oh, I think I had watched too much to drink to be uh. furious. <laughs> and and once, we were in the, once we were all in the dressing room laughing, it was all good. and hooting it up, and champagne, and Novocaine, and nice. whatever else came out. <laughs> Uh, that was the evening. It's the eighties, right? But even 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 Michael the uh, Deacon, even even though everything like sort of you know the shit hit the fan, so to speak. I mean, look at the publicity that no, came that's out. Right, that's I right. mean, it was massive. Very true. Well, yes, the fiasco was not supposed to happen, but of course, when something of that scale happens like i said the only way i know how to say it is it was a shot heard around the world because of what happened at that event that's good publicity totally yes oh i see it from that angle as well and uh there's another name that just came to my mind right now and i'm just curious if, if you ever had come across this individual and i've interviewed him on this show a while ago maybe three years ago now uh, michael allig no not at all i've i uh, uh uh yes i've come across him back in the day when i used to hang out in claire o'connor's office at the limelight um and it was uh in just in passing, sometimes people thought his name and my name sounded the same. We mm. were definitely worlds apart, but no one that really um, came into my universe. Your, really. Yeah, your radar. I see. I was just very curious if you might have brushed yes, shoulders with not this at guy. All. Interesting. I think, I think uh, uh, the other Michael, uh, Alec, was um, more associated with the club uh, kids thing that he kind of started himself, whereas Mr. Lago was more music band related. Right, in, I understand in, 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 that. Yeah, so, but these like worlds, Michael just said, it was a complete well, two yeah. worlds apart. Right, and the scope of what I did back then um, was just big. You know, uh, I you know when I was at the Ritz, of course, I was a young club person, uh, assistant music director. I mean, I kind of took things to another level. I wasn't just a kid out there who worked in a club. I was uh, the assistant booking uh, agent there, music director, assistant to Jerry Brandt. And then three years later, I started my 25-year A&R career. Wow. So it, it, 
Let's talk just for a moment about uh, one of uh, a dear friend of ours, uh, Mr. Peter Steele. What are your um, what's some of your fondest memories about Peter Steele from Typo Negative? I don't have a lot of fond um, b- fond uh, memories because I didn't hang out with him too much. I no? think one of the first one of the first times I saw Pete and the band was down a flight of stairs on Avenue A in a club called Beowulf. I don't know if there were 50 people there, not even. But um, we talked. He was very funny. Uh, I loved his dark brand of humor. Um, and after that, I think it was, you know, we were not friends or anything, but we, I would see him out. He would see me out, you know, uh, and, and that was it. I mean, the really, I couldn't really tell you anything more than that. I see. Uh, the the reason I brought him up is because that's how I met you. Um, you may may or may not recall this incident, but Peter had called me up uh, and told me to meet him at CBGB's, the downstairs where the pizza parlor was. Yeah, and next door, right? Yeah. So we were downstairs. CBGB gallery. Yes. Go ahead. Sorry. Exactly. So we're downstairs, and 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 Peter's got his entourage, and I'm sitting down with him, and you walk in. Now I had never met you before, and you walk in, and you're buying everybody drinks. (laughs) Peter introduces me to you, and I'm like, you know, we didn't have much to say, but you were very kind. And uh, Michael Deacon, uh, just so you know. When I talk about Michael, I always talk Michael Alago. I always talk about him in a in a in a grand grand light um, because when I was when I sang for the Misfits in '98, Michael Alago was one of the nicest guys. Like he came up to me, like he knew I was struggling because I had never done a major tour like that before, and I was having trouble keeping up, you know, nine shows in a row and and singing for an hour straight. And as expected, I wasn't right. used to. And Michael was bringing me honey and and tea and water. I mean, every time I talk about Michael Lago, I always bring him up. And you put him over because yeah. oh well, thank you so much. Well, you're a good man, Michael. You really are, and and. Uh, uh, I do, I do my best. <laughs> you, you sure do. Listen, um, I always feel that um, <sighs> it's all about love and kindness. Because if we don't love and we're not kind, then I have no idea what the hell we're doing on this planet Earth. So I always try to put out the, the best Michael that I can just put out there. Because that's just what it's all about anyway. So that, that's a great virtue. Thank you. Very true. And in your documentary series here that, well, not a series, but the documentary on Netflix, you did mm-hmm. talk about your drug use. And I'm curious to know which band it was that really corrupted you, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> oh, honey, I didn't need any corruption. Oh, I shit. Myself. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> You know, when one when one has a job in the music uh, business like I did, I had to go out all the time. I went out almost every night. I met with lawyers, managers, publishers, and artists. So the corporate card was always out. Ooh. And, you know, being um, out every night and drinking, that loosens you up. It, it makes you uh, a little more friendly to people. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know. I, everything about me back then was more, more, more. So drinking went from being fun and having a good time to becoming addicted to drugs and alcohol. And that's when 
uh, that kind of turns on you. And it wasn't pretty anymore. Um, so I'm sorry, Michael. I don't know what the question was. I was just wondering which band it was that uh, sort of they were no, right. I didn't really gotcha from anybody. None of them. Okay. To uh, get to that state of mind in the evening, and like I said, it was fun until it wasn't fun anymore. You know, I, I figured it might have been like Metallica that corrupted you the most with all the drinking that they were doing. No, um, but when I met them, they were already called Alcoholica. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Perfect name. Perfect Very name. Very fitting for these young, crazy people who were fantastic. Um, nah, I didn't need any corruption. I corrupted myself. You were already corrupted. That is correct. In more ways than one. Yes. Amazing. This Mr. Lago, did you have did I mean if if you want to answer this question that's fine if not I understand but when you were getting off the the drugs and the alcohol did you go to a rehab or anything like that or did you come off yourself Sure um no uh, I'll try to make this as concise as possible um I'm 32 years old I'm working still for Electra I'm in the height of my drinking and drugging um and people are talking about me. And so a lot of those people who were talking about me were artists and managers and lawyers. And they went to Bob Krasnow, our chairman, and said, you know, Michael's a mess. He is a no-show and uh, doesn't look good for Electra." So one day Bob said to me, do you have a problem? I said, no. He said, you do. And you could either pack up your office at 5 o'clock or go to rehabilitation. What wow. is it you want to do? And I said, oh, Bob, said, you know what? You're, you're fired. And wow. I went back to my office. I started crying because keep in mind, this was my dream job since I'm a young kid being in the music business. Sure. And so his Bob's uh, executive assistant, Ruth Rosenberg, comes to my office and said, Michael, Bob doesn't want to fire you. Get your act together. It was three or four days before Christmas. And so Christmas Eve, I was flying to Hazelden in Minneapolis. Furious, furious. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I did my 30 day stint there. Wow. Um, it's, it's then um, the end of, uh, the end of 1992, the beginning of 1993. I'm about to start a Nina Simone record because I had just signed her. Um, so that was my, I, my first and only stint in rehab. I did stay what they call a dry drunk for eight years. I didn't go to any kind of 12-step meetings. I didn't do anything that was suggested to me. So I was still angry. Um, I was not a happy person. I just didn't want to lose my job. And that's not a way to live. So um, after eight years, I started drinking again. And from 40 to 47 uh, were the worst years of my life. Uh, I wound up in jail. I wound up in St. Vincent's Hospital a lot, uh, thinking that my heart was going to stop. I was in crack dens in New Orleans and don't know how I got there. Oh, my. Uh, That's and not I good. thought that all that behavior was okay. And one day at 47 years old, I was sick of myself. And um, I don't remember how I knew to go to a 12-step meeting in Greenwich Village, in the West Village. I did, and it has been the saving grace of my life. Um, I don't one day at a time. I do not drink or drug no matter what, no matter what, you know, mom dies two years ago. I don't drink over it. I, I need and want to stay present in this life. I need to be a person that is responsible and shows up. And when you show up, 
and people know that they can rely on you. Right. You know, there you go. I yep. knew I was doing the right thing. And uh, so, yes, I've been now clean and sober for all, coming up on 13 years. That's wonderful, Michael. Good Congratulations. Thank you. Oh, yes. And <laughs> what, you, yes, buddy. It what wasn't exact- easy, but yeah. it had to be done. What, what exactly was the weapon of choice outside of alcohol? Well, there was beer and Jägermeister and vodka and ecstasy and mushrooms and coke <laughs> and, cra- and crack cocaine <laughs> and, you know, was all of the above. Sounds like a good time. <laughs> yeah, you were living like it up. I said, more, more, more. Yeah, just living life. And again, yep. it was fun for a brief period of time until it's not fun anymore. Yeah. It becomes a very dark world. And uh, I was sinking into that dark world very, very quickly. Uh, never mind that I had acquired HIV. And I was still doing drink and drugs with my HIV medication, which doctors don't uh, suggest to do. Um, Goddamn. I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky in the mid-90s when I was on my deathbed, uh, wasting away. They called it wasting syndrome. Um, but I didn't die. And you know what? Um, I had a brilliant doctor, and she took incredible care of me. And, um, you know, I guess I, I wasn't meant to die back then when all my gay brothers and sisters were dying from the AIDS epidemic. Right, right. Um, I guess I was supposed to and am supposed to be here right now for many reasons, you know. So that's why I always talk about being kind and helping other people because at one point in time I was helped. And when people are struggling and don't know how to ask for help, you just have to extend a hand. Yep. You know, you know, Mr. Deacon, um, what Michael Lago was just talking about, you know, with all his, 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 uh, accumulation of drugs. Uh, I can attest to that because I, there was a point in time where I was doing, I was DJing a lot from between, uh, 2000 to 2007. And, um, I'll tell you, I would, I would go into my, my DJ booth and then the regulars would just like sort of line up, come up to the DJ booth and they'd say, hey, Mike, you know, play me that song. And somebody would hand me a joint. And then another person would be, hey, Mike, play me that song and then hand me a bag of Coke. And then another person would come by, hey, Mike, play me that song. And they'd hand me like a bag of heroin and drinks and ecstasy and so on and so oh, amazing. on. So it's just it's just out there. No matter like when you're in the music industry, like drugs, sex, drugs and rock and roll, that it, that's what it's about. Right. Well, uh, yes, and it was very, very prevalent for myself because it was the 80s (laughs) when I I started. Everything was going on. There were clubs from a Studio 54 to a CBGB, things that were happening every single night. And I wanted to be part of all of that and being part of all that, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll were, were what was happening. Right. And I don't know. I was in the middle of all that. You were in that world. That is correct. Understood. Understood. And how on earth did you come across White Zombie? Oh, well, I won't give you the entire story because you could go buy my book. I am my own <laughs> on Amazon.com. Amazon.com. And, and by the way, I'm on sale. I'm cheap this week. He's cheap. It's $18. <laughs> it's $18. 
So you son of a guns better go out there and buy that darn book. Put a, <laughs> put a, put a darn quarter in my pocket. That's right. How did I find White Zombie? Um, I'll give you the short version. Go ahead. My dear friend Daniel Ray, who was a producer and songwriter, worked a lot with Iggy Pop and the Ramones, and was in a band called the Masters of Reality, and also played with Ronnie Spector. Back then, he was shopping three bands, uh, Raging Slab, Circus of Power, and White Zombie. He got Raging Slab and Circus of Power signed to RCA Records, and nobody wanted White Zombie. So he said, Michael, you have to come see this band. Uh, nobody wants them, but I think you wa- you'll want them. And of course, I wanted them. I went <laughs> to see them at a little place um, under Indochine, a restaurant on Lafayette Street in the East Village. It was a little dank box that maybe it was a bar. It was like a box. And they were playing. And it was loud and noisy. And uh, they had no songs. But there was something about the noise that they were creating. Wait that, a minute, wait, 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 what do you mean they had no songs? Well, you know, it was like noise. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, it was, uh, I don't know if you want to call it esoteric, uh, you know. It was art, just, it was art. Know, <laughs> art, you know, art rock, if you will. And I just, uh, they were on stage and sweating and Rob had dreadlocks and, I just looked, you know, I had learned by that time in uh, seven years into my career that I could only be associated with great, not good. So I honed my skills and my ears, and I was always just hoping as an A&R person that I was making the right decision. Anyway, I fell in love with them as people. I let them know that if I was going to sign them to Geffen Records, we really have to retool this whole band. <laughs> they knew what I was talking about, and they started coming up with songs, you know. Uh, and um, so between Daniel Ray and Andy Wallace, uh, who uh, produced and mixed uh, Slayer Records, we came up with an extraordinary first album, La Sexorcisto. Devil Music Volume One, and I don't. I want to give away. There's lots of stuff yeah, don't that went into the making of that record, like Beavis and Budhead, Russ Meyer, the sexploitation film director. We try to get a hold of Charles Manson, and that's all I will tell you nice. about the making of that record. Oh, God. It's all in my book, and it's a really fun read to read about the making of that record and the signing of White Zombie to Geffen Records. Very cool. I'm getting getting that book tonight. I know. I never knew this. And of course, (laughs) I I must ask about Metallica yet again. Yes. And how old were they when you first came across them? Were they still... Well, if I I was 24, they were 21, 22 Yeah, I figured. Yeah, Yeah, you saw them. Everybody was young in the 80s. Of course. We were all in our (laughs) early 20s. They Very were nice. they were on a, a record label. Uh, That's before. correct. They were on an independent record label called Megaforce. Megaforce, uh, right, yeah. right. Yes, um, but uh, Johnny Z, who runs Megaforce or ran Megaforce back then, very quickly became a colleague of mine, and um, he sent me a box of records one day that 
uh, Kill 'Em All was in, and the first Raven record, the first Testament record, the first Anthrax record was in. Johnny wanted me to do demos with Raven because he thought they were going to be like the biggest band ever. So I did the demos. I gave him five grand. He gave me back five terrific songs. But the problem was I heard Kill 'Em All by Metallica. And I had seen them once at Lemoore in Brooklyn while I was still working at the Ritz. I really thought that this was the greatest thing I had ever heard. They were merging punk rock, speed, British heavy metal, traditional heavy metal into this one concoction called Metallica. And seeing James Hetfield, their singer, on stage, I thought, this is a young man who knows how to captivate an audience. He's a ringleader. He knows how to whip a crowd into a frenzy. And I knew that I wanted to be part of that. So I had to tell John I wasn't going to sign Raven. I wanted to sign Metallica. He was furious with me. But, you know, being an independent label with no real means to get an artist to the next level, um, he knew that he had to let them go. So money talks. So our business affairs um, people spoke to their business affairs people and a deal was struck and everybody walked away financially satisfied. But that evening that I signed Metallica at Roseland, they were part of a triple act bill with Raven and Anthrax. And the great part of that evening was that night Raven got signed to Atlantic Records. Uh, Anthrax got signed to Island Records and I signed Metallica to Electra. So it's like all's well that ends well. Now, M Michael, weren't you involved in Island Records at one point? Was that I Island was Management? I, I, I was never. I never managed. I, I went from the Ritz to Electra to Geffen to Palm Pictures. I went back to Electra. I went back to Geffen. And that's 23 years right there in 60 seconds. Okay. Gotcha. That's pretty wild stuff. Metallica is a one-of-a-kind band. Sure. Yes, I agree with you. They really are marvelous. Um, and, you know, to speak of the originality and the strength of these people in 2020, they've been doing this almost, my God, 38 years. They're still going. Years, and yeah. they're still going. And, you know... They're still playing stadiums. That's it's insane. a testament to the greatness and the originality and never um, and always doing what they wanted to do and hope that the audience would continue to follow them. And you yep. know what? They did. I, I still have my Kill 'em All album, Vinyl. Wonderful. And and I, I remember I was in high school. I was uh -huh. a junior in high school and all I was a punk rocker. Uh, in fact I was probably on the I was on the edge of punk rock versus hardcore. because uh, at some point I was kind of straight edge. And um, I, all my friends were mostly metalheads because there were no punk rockers in Patterson, New Jersey where I lived. So they would always bring up Metallica, this this band that was just rising from the depths of sure. metal, and they just became this huge. Them and Slayer just became huge, uh, but but obviously Metallica had it. Metallica wasn't as satanic as, uh, say, Slayer was. They didn't have sure. like Slayer was. You know, they were pushing that whole uh, black metal thing. Whereas Metallica. Not only did they have a unique sound, a, a grinding, like just bash your face in metal sound, but they were 
somewhat marketable. Uh, I can't even explain it, but they were marketable. Well, you know, the, you know yes, and, and, and the marketability of them back in the day, you know, I would sit in these marketing meetings with corporate people at Electra, and I had to explain to them that this is not a radio-friendly band, nor are we going to edit any of their songs on their album because they would cut my head off, and nor did I – it would be screwing with the art that they were making. So the trick of this, because they were so wonderful live back then, uh, at, at very early days, and that's what created the buzz, we gave them a year of tour support and said, go on out there. And they went out there, and they, you know, that, that year that we signed them in 84, they were out there every single night. And by being out there, that created not only the buzz, but, you know, they were the talk of the town. They started selling records. And as they say, uh, the rest is history. Yep. Wow. Hey, Michael, have you ever have you ever worked with uh, Bowie at all? Never met David a few times at the Ritz. And um, that that's really it. no, never worked with him. But really one of my all time favorite artists ever. Yeah. Yeah. Yours and mine. Very nice. Extraordinary. Also, a one of a kind. And by the no way, kidding. someone, uh, a listener, David, is asking, hey, Michael Deacon, can you ask, please, if he worked with Warner Chapel Publishing? Did I? Right. No. Um, no, listener. Hi there. I never worked for a publishing company. I only worked for record companies. That's what my A&R gig was about, being at record companies and signing artists. So no publishing for me. Indeed. And also, I think someone else in the chat room asked earlier what it was like working with the Cindy Lauper. Working with the Cindy Lauper. Uh, yes, Cindy Lauper, also unique artist, dedicated to what she does. Brilliant, gorgeous. Uh, uh, um, it, it was incredible working with Cindy. Again, that's a chapter in my book called Memphis Blues. Um, I'm not going to give away the chapter because it's really a great chapter. Amazing. And it's not just about going to Memphis to make the record. Um, in some shape, way, or form, I will let you know that it involved uh, people from the civil rights movement. And um, we had an extraordinary experience or two down in Memphis. Um, when the record came out, it got nominated for a Grammy for Best Contemporary Blues Album. It didn't win, but what it said to both of us was that she made an extraordinary record on her terms. And she always did things on her terms. And that's why we still talk about Cindy Lauper and her greatness, because she really is another artist who's one of a kind. It was great working with Cindy. We had so much fun sitting in her kitchen on the Upper West Side, eating Chinese food, sitting on our computer, looking for the best blues songs that we could have her sing from a woman's point of view. And um, we did that until we narrowed it down to, you know, 30 songs, 20 songs, the best 12. And uh, we found a great uh, producer named Scott Bomar, who has his own studio down in uh, Memphis, and we made the record. But the, the chapter about Memphis Blues in my book, I go into a little more than I'm telling you about now. Yes. And it's really, it's a really a good chapter, I promise you. I will definitely have to get the book. I am intrigued. And also... You, you and a, me both. Right. And there's one more artist 
before sure. I, I turn it over to Mike here, there was another artist who really touched your soul, as they say, Nina Simone. <laughs> what, what's going on there? <laughs> what happened? Well, here we are, Nina Simone. And funny enough, or uh, um, I don't know what the proper word is at the moment. I'm, I'm at loss for words uh-huh. all of a sudden. But tonight, um, uh, 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 April 21st, is uh, the death date of Nina Simone. Mm, right. um, yes, she, uh, Nina uh, died April 21st, 2003. Uh, for me... <laughs> Nina Simone was the greatest artist that ever walked the planet. I heard her voice when I was 12 years old at my Aunt Jenny's house. I didn't have a word like um, uh, 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 androgynous back then as a 12 or 13-year-old. I just knew that the voice was different. Um, As I grew up, I, I, I... stayed uh, in touch with the records that she was putting out. I bought all the vinyl. Uh, I just think Nina Simone was a, it's just a one-of-a-kind extraordinary. You know, she sings Bob Dylan. She sings George Harrison. She sings Jacques Brel, reinterprets French to English. And you think because she knows how to get to the heart of the matter of a song that she wrote those things. But no, that was just the beauty of what she did. She was a great interpreter of other people's material. And that touched me. And I knew I wanted to sign her. When I signed her, she hadn't made records for 10 or 12 years. Nobody cared about her. She was what they considered a has-been. She was a troublemaker. And all of that intrigued me. And we became friends. And we were friends the last I'm not sure, let's say 15 or 16 years of her life. And I adore Nina Simone. I think in my book, her chapter is the longest chapter of the entire (laughs) book. No, it's like 17 pages because we had fun. She was not easy, but that was okay with me because I loved and respected the work so much. Really, Nina Simone is just my all-time favorite artist, and if your listeners don't know much about Nina Simone, I suggest you go to YouTube, just type in her name. Um, there's a great song she wrote during the civil rights movement called Mississippi Goddamn. It was about the riots. It was about Dr. King, and it's one of her most extraordinary songs that she wrote herself. So, yeah, Nina Simone. I can't get enough of Nina Simone. She was the proverbial hidden gem. Uh, yes, but I don't know about so, not, uh, such a hidden gem, but, um, you know, she was very popular in the sixties and seventies and then not so much in the eighties and nineties. And then, uh, I just helped, I didn't want her to go out with people thinking that, oh, she's not going to ever make a record again. And my record with her was very different than anything else. She wasn't really angry anymore. She was sad a lot. And uh, her father had died. My father had died. So we made this beautiful record about love and loneliness and loss called A Single Woman. And we made it with a 50-piece orchestra. And it's just very lush and beautiful. And it's like one of those slit-your-wrist records. That's right. (laughs) I understand. Probably one of the slit-your-wrist. But we just one thing, we modeled it after two records. Billie Holiday's Lady in Satin and Frank Sinatra's A Man Alone. Two very different records for both those artists. That We loved that record, and we said, let's do our own version. So that wound up being her final full-length recording, A Single Woman. 
Understood. That, the best musicians that, are always deeply damaged, it seems. Well, you know, I don't throw a wor- the word genius around a lot because that gets overused. But really, Nina Simone really was a genius. And, you know, she was troubled. And she was had, like, bipolar. And the best are. The best always are. People didn't diagnose that. So she had drank a lot as well. Right. But you know what? I mean, if you listen to any of her records on RCA, on Bethlehem, on Phillips, you're going to get something wonderful out of those experiences because she really was that masterful at what she did. You know, the, the and, beauty. And, and I'm sorry, I could just go on for another hour if you like, but I know we don't have that kind of time. <laughs> so I'll just leave it at if I was on a desert island and I could only hear one voice again, it would be her voice. Uh, That's how much I love you. Nicely so put, nicely put. Go ahead, Mike. I was just going to say the beauty of that story, which, which fascinates me the most, uh, is that you took this artist who had not done anything for years. And you put her back in the spotlight, and I, I, I'm so amazed by that. Well, I felt it was my duty as a music lover and uh, as having a respect for this woman and what she went through that because I was able to do that, it was my job to do that. I wanted to do that. I thought she needed another shot. And it just bolstered the last like 10 years of her life, our being in touch all the time and knowing we were going to make this record. And it was just really an extraordinary experience. I mean, it's, you know, she's a person who will live in my heart until the very end. Yeah. Rest in peace to her. Yes, indeed. Rest in peace, rest in power, rest in paradise. A wonderful Nina Simone. Amazing. And of course, aside from Nina Simone, who else was your, I guess, favorite artist that you signed? Well, you know, you know, this is a little corny, but it's like when you say, who is your favorite child? Uh-huh. <laughs> you, know, you can't go there. That's true. Go I, there and respectfully, yes. Else. But, you know, I really did have the privilege of working with everyone from Metallica to Rob Zombie to Nina Simone to John Light and to Cindy Lauper. And you can only imagine by name dropping those names that I just dropped, um, what the ex- <laughs> they were all extraordinary and very different. Very special, too. Yeah. You know, I would. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, when I'm on the um, my ear is on the phone. My left ear with James Hetfield, and I have to say, hold on. And Nina is on the right side. Of, you know, I have two juggles. You know, those are very different experiences. One is happening all uh, happening all at the same time. But I knew how, I just was good at my job, and I knew how to juggle these people. And um, I never signed anyone that I wasn't fully passionate about even when people said oh you know that rock band is going to be big that's nice i hate them so i was really very select about who i wanted to work with and i felt in my heart of hearts i knew what greatness was and that's what i always looked for i can respect that no doubt and uh, michael or mr lago these days what what kind of music are you listening to (laughs) 
I'm curious. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I laugh only because at one point in my life when I was drinking and drugging, I sold my vinyl collection. Oh, no. Worst, worst idea. Not good. Not good. World. Not good at all. So I've been uh, collecting vinyl again. And most of the vinyl has been singers from the 50s and 60s, whether it's Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, Johnny Mathis, uh, Joe Stafford, Francis Faye. Uh, it, it all depends on my mood. I but, love all those bands, all yeah, those singers. Well, they were great. They were they were great singers. Uh, um, but you know, right now, you know, I I love I still love heavy metal. I love the noise. I love the darkness. Um, so a couple of records I've been listening to is uh, Venom Inks Ave. I've been listening to. Uh, well, there's a little band I just got signed to Century Media called Ether Coven. And their record is called Everything is Temporary Except Suffering. Um, and wow. uh, I, love that. I don't know. I love a New York band called Black Anvil. Um, there's a British band called Gallows. They made an extraordinary punk rock record called Great Britain. Um, so I don't know. There's like it, it, it's a ministry. I'll always love ministry. I love David Bowie. Um, I, I, my, my tastes are varied depending on my mood. If I know I'm going to be going out for some raucous night, I might put on Rain and Blood by by um, Slayer <laughs> and get me going until I'm out the door. If it's Sunday morning and I want to chill, uh, you know, I'll listen to Tony Bennett, maybe. I just like I love that my ears were never and my heart was never just attracted to one form of music. And I think that's what helped me in my A&R career, too, listening to all kinds of music. And now collecting vinyl, which I've been lucky enough to find a lot of mint condition stuff on lucky. eBay. Like I just found a Duke Ellington Mahalia Jackson record sealed for like $6. Oh. And it was like, oh, my God, I have to get that right this minute. <laughs> so I've been, re I've been collecting vinyl again, and I'm happy to do it. Very nice. That reminded me of uh, Anvil, yes. the band. I'm not sure if um, you ever kind of came across uh, the story of Anvil, which you could find online. Oh, yeah. Great guys. I love Lips, the singer. Um, yeah, very underrated band in the United States. Um, they never made it like they thought they were going to make it. Right, right. But they were, they were, they were, they were, they were a, tri a power trio that the metal community respected. I believe they went away for a long time. And then that well-deserved documentary came out, and it kind of helped put them on the map again. And isn't that great when an artist can get put on the map again oh, yeah. and go out and work and make a dollar? You know what I mean? I hear yep. you. I hear you. And so, yes, I, mm -hmm. I saw them. I was never professionally involved with them, but I went to many of their gigs, and uh, they're, they're great people. Great people. And great people always deserve that extra you know no arguments from me on that and michael i gotta ask you what about current music today what are your thoughts and opinions on uh well today's music scene if there is one left well i mean it's a little shaky well, no, well, there's all kinds of music out there. I've never been a person who listened to Top 40 radio, although I do love a lot of these gals out there. I love Dua Lipa. I love Lady Gaga. Um, I think Alicia Keys is absolutely brilliant. Uh, 
I still, you know, I'm out there all the time listening to rock and roll. You know, a lot of clubs have closed in New York and uh, in the tri-state area. So a lot of uh, artists who are coming through play places like, say, Vitus Bar in Brooklyn. Um, I don't know if I completely answered your question, but there's always going to be all types of music coming out there. I've never been one for the popular music on the radio. It just, it just wasn't my thing. It was for me, it was more, that was more like fluff and it was catering to the masses. Those kind of things mostly didn't speak to me, but you know what? There's always music out there to be had by all types of people who want to hear top 40 or they want to hear heavy metal or, you know, or they want to hear old school singers from the forties, fifties and sixties. What I was getting at was, oh. yeah, you're right about the top 40 um, list out there. Yeah. I'm, I'm not really down with that either, but it, it was just a, a little strange to me that most of the time you rarely see a, like a, a band, like a real band be number one. It's usually a, a rap artist. Yeah. Well, rock, I think a lot of rock and roll is rock dead. Really. No, rock is not dead. I don't think so. It may be harder to come by uh, because of the way of the music business these days. But I don't think a lot of rock artists cared about being on the radio unless you made records like, um, and I'm only bringing this band up because of their greatness, like like a Def Leppard. And when you had Mutt Lang produce you, you were going for that radio-friendly sound. So, you know, not every rock artist gets on the radio. Um, and I don't know if I answered your question yet again. <laughs> That's okay. That's you good. know, uh, for, for those of you out there who uh, don't know Michael on every level that he uh, of efforts that he puts out, uh, some of you might be surprised to know that he is also a photographer. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yes, I, I take pictures. I have three books out, and it's mostly pictures. I photograph men. I photograph men who are scarred and tattooed because that's what I like looking at. Uh, so I have three books out of like male erotica. Um, I'm working on a portrait book right now. And for you uh, women out I, there. I only sh- what? I said for the women out there. This they'll like this. Honey, the women love it. And <laughs> all my gay friends love it's the book. So the guys. There's always something to That's look true. at, honey. We need good visuals out in the world. I have um, to I have yeah, to admit Yes, please. Uh, I was, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I was going to say I have to admit I've seen I've seen your work and it's it is really fabulous, and I, I really enjoyed some of the the imagery that you got with some of these guys who are, uh, in most cases, are, they're very well built. <laughs> they're brutes. They're not they're not models. They're not homogenized. I want to take a beast and get something out of him. So that when the viewer looks at the picture, this person looks somewhat approachable so that then you can get involved with however you want to get involved with the picture. <laughs> um, so, you know, if I was shooting somebody and they did their job, I did my job, then the picture is a success, whatever that means. And um, yeah, whatever. So, yeah, I have three books out of that. And I'm working on a little black and white book of all backstage pictures and tattoos. And uh, and I shoot them now. I just put my cameras away and I shoot everything on the iPhone with a hipstamatic application. And everything comes out in a square. And I love a square. 
And so um, I, I just need to find a new publisher for my black and white book. But yes, I take pictures. I love telling stories with pictures. And now that we're in quarantine, yes. I've mostly been shooting still life of, photo, of uh, flowers, all different kinds of flowers. Yeah, and, you know, and, and, I actually that, – that, that, I'm sorry. Just that shooting of flowers is my little homage to one of my all-time favorite photographers, Robert Maplethorpe. And um, yeah. You, you know, Michael, uh, it's funny you bring that up because I myself, I'm a professional photographer these days, and uh-huh. uh, I had never in all my years, I, I've been doing photography since I was about 16, actually even younger than that because my father was a professional photographer. Oh, how so, great. Yep. And he had a studio. I was developing film at age 13. Um, but what I'm getting at is uh, you mentioned the flowers. Now, I became a professional photographer in 2009. And it was at that point in time that for the first time in my life, being the artist that I am, I paint, I draw, I do all kinds of, you know, creative artwork. Sure. Never once had I ever considered photographing flowers. And then I got my first camera and I began to photograph flowers like up close, really up close. And I'll tell you, not to brag, but some of the best pictures I've ever taken have been of flowers. Oddly enough, Mike Hitty takes and they pictures don't of talk flowers. Back to you? No, they don't. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I, I just think flowers are so beautiful that uh, yeah, I just I you know uh, I just love photographing flowers. Me too. The colors, the vibe, especially in spring, the vibrant colors that come out they're they're great to photograph. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, before we get into uh, a, a, a topic that I'm sure Michael Deacon wants to talk to you about as well is with the the CV virus that's going on. That's right. Aren't want- you tired of talking to me already? I'm all no. No, we can never be tired <laughs> oh, of talking good. to you. Okay. Thank you. Go ahead. I had I I wanted to bring up one more person that we both knew, and uh, that is Mr. Arturo Vega. Uh, for those of you who don't know oh, who Arturo right. Vega is, mm-hmm. he was the artist that did uh, the the artwork for the, like just about every Ramones uh, imagery you had ever seen. He also well, did. Remember, keep in mind, he created the Ramones logo, their logo, iconic logo. Yep, you know. You, you know, you see people walking around these days with Ramon's shirt. You know they were not at CBGB. Right. <laughs> it's just one of those T-shirts that you got to have. It's like I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, Mike. no, that's quite right. Uh, but, you know, uh, 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 there were – again, there, there were two people who I always talk about when I was associated with the Misfits in 98, and that was Arturo Vega of and course. Michael Arato. Arturo oh, Vega okay. was absolutely – he was like – he was like a brother to me, like a big brother. Mm-hmm. He talked to me. He he. Well, cared. he was very he, fond of you. You know, he really was. He, he and, and I was fond of him. And I'll tell you, I this. I'm speaking to you, Michael Deacon. Um, I had been speaking with Michael Alago. Oh, this had to be at least maybe ten years ago, or whenever he had died. And uh, I had asked Michael Alago. I said. Have you spoken to Arturo Vega yet? And he tells me Arturo died and I did not even know about it. I was absolutely taken. I I was beside myself. I was shocked. I was hurt because I I loved Arturo. He was a great guy and I never got a chance to say goodbye to him. Well, a lot of us didn't. Unfortunately, it happened rather quickly. 
um, that he was suffering for a bit, just a bit of time of cancer. But he really was legendary. You know, he was this person who came from Chihuahua, Mexico, and was washing dishes at Orange Julius back in the day. And he knew that he was an artist and a painter, uh, young then. And he hooked up with the Ramones, and he created that iconic logo. He became their um, their lighting person. Uh, he also, in the very end got the city of New York to name East 2nd Street and the Bowery Joey Ramone Place. Oh, uh, wow. was, was a He was a force to be reckoned with. And I tell some very funny stories about him in my book that have that are involved with cocaine nice. and, and, and hustler bars. All right. <laughs> not giving a shit about money. Like when we almost lost twenty three grand in oh. the back of a taxi, Holy um, <laughs> because we were so because we were so out of control. But yeah, Arturo was really um, a, a beautiful human being, extraordinary. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah, the, that and, that logo right there, Mike and Mister Lago. I must say, it's quite um, classic and very iconic. Very much oh, like the Misfits uh, Fiend logo. Those two logos uh, stand out from everyone else. Yep. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't even have to put the words Misfits on that skull, and everybody right. globally knows everyone that that's knows. a Misfits t-shirt. That is, you know, that is extraordinary you know that doesn't happen with everybody yeah that's some that's some heavy shit right there and of course you oh are, yeah <laughs> you, you are wearing a ramones t-shirt uh right there right here on skype yep oh i oh yeah oh there's my little face there, right. you, <laughs> there you go there you go ramones always Amazing. Was that was that picture taken in Arturo's it looks like his wall, the, the brick wall. You know, it's funny, I think that was taken somewhere in like Greenpoint or Bushwick. Oh, okay. um, a dear friend of mine who passed, his name was Isaro. He was also Mexican, I believe. Uh, he just took that picture of me out on the street and I like that star behind my head. So I ah. said, let's just shoot the picture here. And uh, it was a happy day, so hence the smile. Very nice. And of course, we have to bring this up. You are currently in New York City at the moment, correct? Yes, I am. And what's it like out there right now? Uh, it's a ghost town. It's empty. As everybody knows, we're in this uh, oh, pandemic, the coronavirus, COVID-19. Uh, it, it feels insidious. It feels like uh, I've traveled back in time to the AIDS epidemic. Right. Now, you know, it's what's scary. I'm looking out my window right now. I have a little terrace. I see how beautiful the lights are at the World Trade Center. I'm looking down 8th Avenue and maybe I see two cars. It's a ghost town because our mayor, the wonderful Governor Andrew Cuomo, has um, given the mandate that you, everyone really needs to stay home. And if you go out for groceries or a pharmacy or whatnot, you must wear a mask. We hear about people who get sick on a Thursday and they're dead on a Monday. And, you know, like a friend of mine recently said, oh, Michael, you watch too much TV. No, it's the truth. It is. We hear about it. It's a pandemic. It's hit all 50 states, some places like New York and New Jersey more than others. So, you know what, whether we like it or not, I always tell people in these times, 
You got to stay home, stay safe, only go out if you need the essentials, wear a mask, wear your gloves, and do your best to amuse yourself when you're home. <laughs> you're you know, have for to. me, I, I'm lucky that I, I like my solitude. Um, I like that I can speak to people like you because I have a book to promote and the book can be gotten online. So I'm trying not to lose time or momentum with the book. I love, I love creative writing. I love making collages. When we hang up, I'm about to go into a David Lynch rabbit hole and watch <laughs> every single episode of Twin Peaks, which began in 1991. But there's a prequel called Fire Walk With Me. So in the, I didn't realize what time it was when we started this. So I just stopped the movie in the middle of it. And when we hang up, I'm going to make my little avocado dip with my blue corn tortilla chips. And I'm going to rock out to David Lynch. Nice. Well, I'm glad you are staying uh, with a very optimistic mindset of everything that's going on right now. It's almost like the end times, right? Well, I hope it's not the end of days, but um, it's very serious, you know, and uh I just try to keep a good attitude and I try to have my friends uh, keep a good attitude as best they can. And uh, let's hope that they do find a vaccine for this sooner than later, because it is scary. You know, all everybody had to cancel tours. Bro the Broadway theaters have closed down. Mom and pop shops have closed know even they're going to be able to open up again because of the amount of time and money that they have lost and are losing so um it, it, it it's a very i think it's a very troubling time right now you know it's it's interesting too because uh people like yourself uh mr lago and and me uh, we have compromised immune systems and sure. it's, it's it's much more severe for for us and well, you that's know just why I'm very cautious just you this week, I, I had gotten an, I had been given an offer to go on tour uh, starting in South America, uh, Central America, and then flying over to Europe. And when I spoke to this gentleman about doing this tour, he was like, yeah, it's going to take place in uh, late November into December. And I'm like, wow. At that point, from all the interviews that we've been doing on the show, Michael Deacon and myself, we've gotten so much information in hearing that there's going to be a second wave coming in October, possibly November. Could and, be, I've heard. Yeah. And, and like, so even myself, I, I had to say no to this tour because of the severity of yes. possible death. So it's affecting everyone. So, uh, when, when we when we speak to people about this, we get every everybody's their side of the story. There's a gentleman, a doctor, uh, Dr. Paul Cottrell, who is from New York City, who gives us fascinating information about what is going on and and how to protect ourselves and what the possibilities sure. are for for the future. And it's really it's it's going to affect every single one of us worldwide. Oh, in one way or another, yes. On MSNBC all the time, there's an incredible scientist. His name is Dr. Uh, Anthony Fauci. I've known about him for the last 45 years. He is brilliant, and I listen to everything he has to say. And he does 
think that if people don't pay attention like they're supposed to, there could be another wave as early as September. I just saw on the news that there are some states down in the south. They've opened up the beaches. They've oh, they want to open. Yes, of course, people want to get back to work, but not at the expense of. How do you know that the person that you're standing next to doesn't have it and they're asymptomatic but still contagious? It's a very tricky time right now. And so whether we like it or not, I think I'm following what the healthcare professionals are saying. And I hope more people than not are doing the same. It's 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 scary, Mike and Michael. It it really is. It's something else. We have not lived through anything like this before. These are historical no. times, Mr. Alago. Yes. And yes, yes you, indeed. We, we have to take this seriously. I mean, there's a man by the name of Bishop Gerald Glenn who died uh, two weeks after saying, I firmly believe that God is larger than this dreaded virus. You can quote me on that. You can quote me on that. I am a central. I am a preacher. I talk to God. And just two weeks later, he's gone. Wow. Yeah, so that you know. that version of Christianity or whatever of God, a lot of those uh, religious leaders, really, I just think they have it all so twisted. And you know, you don't want to hear about anybody dying, but come on, man, you're human. Yeah, and I got so, a, I got yeah, a lot I, of I um, even know. I got a lot of heat. I, I think we should not end this on a bum note. No, we shouldn't. Except that you know. Everybody needs to pay attention. You need to care for everybody. You need to stay home if you need to. Only go out if necessary. Amuse yourself at home. Watch old movies. Listen to music. Try to be creative. FaceTime with your friends maybe that you haven't seen in a long time. Uh, you know, try to stay as a, you know, I always say positive, and then I have to say pun not intended. Yes. But uh, you have to stay as positive as possible in all Right, of right. <laughs> And you can even read Michael's book or my book. There you go. <laughs> you can read one right after the other. Or or you could take the shortcut and just get on Netflix, as most people here already have Netflix, and search, who the fuck is that guy? And you'll find Michael Lago right there. Right on. Definitely. And I want to thank you, Mr. Lago, for spending some of your precious time with us. Uh, and that's oh, all we have nowadays. Oh, my pleasure. Oh, we got his time now. We, well, we always have time, but now it's very, uh, very specific, and I think people are thinking about time in a very different way these days. But uh, thank you so much for having me. It's been really a pleasure talking to both of you and uh, uh, your viewers out there. Thank you for listening. And you know, if you want to see an interesting documentary, go go watch. It's on Netflix and Amazon Prime Video. Who? Oh, did we lose him? And I'll be oh, extra shame. I'll be I'll be extra and say go buy my book. <laughs> I am Michael Alago. Breathing music, signing Metallica, beating death. It's on Amazon and I'm cheap this week. It's eighteen bucks. <laughs> Michael, I just want to tell you thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh and, my pleasure. And, and thank you for being a friend for all these years and, and staying in touch with me. And for, you know, just promoting your your book your movie and the one one favor i'm gonna ask is when you talk to johnny Lydon, put in a good word for us because i want to interview him he's very specific i and, know <laughs> uh, he's he's home in los angeles his wife is not doing so good oh no um but uh sure why not <laughs> I, haven't 
I haven't talked to him since his birthday at the beginning of the year, but uh, sure. Yeah, let him know I'm an anarchist. Okay. <laughs> It'll put me over. Michael, I love you, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you both. I, I really appreciate it. Both of you have a good evening and stay safe. And yes, sir. Rocking and rolling. And, uh, you know it. You know, good. Good thank, night. Yeah, thank you so good much. Night. And mahalo, my friend. Take care of yourself out there. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Good night. Bye now. And uh, there he goes, boys and girls, the one and only Mr. Michael Alago. That was a fun time there, Mike. Did you enjoy that? Oh, absolutely. It just brings me down memory lane whenever I hear him talk because he just he's, you know, his association with music. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, it, it, it somehow it connects with my younger days. Your as youth. Being, yeah. My younger days as being a musician um, and actually not even a, being a musician, but more of a fan. And, you know, he's you know, Michael's older than I am, but still like he, he, the things he's done. You know, they probably set me um, uh, set me up to like the bands that I like today. He's a good guy. He's lived the life. Indeed. I know. Watching what did his, you what do you think? Watching his documentary and, you know, watching the movie, The Warriors. Uh, I was just like, wow, my God, you know, these two um, seeing New York, you know, being talked about and then seeing the movie, The Warriors again. It um made me trip out. You know, I had friends who were out there in New York at one time. Yeah. Aside from you, Mike, you know. They would well, tell I me stories. In New York. I was never in New York. I lived in New Jersey. But you went out there in the glory days. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. So I've been I hearing about a- mm-hmm. I spent a good portion of my my uh my early uh my mid twenties into my forties, uh, being in New York. Cause we played there a lot. I have friends there a lot. I had girlfriends there. Uh, you know, it was just a thing. I, I was there. I would take the train in, I would take the path train in and just, Oh my gosh, I wouldn't get home until the sun came up the next day. Michael had, um, different hoes and different area codes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was so, fun that, though. It was a good interview. Yeah. That that was a brilliant, brilliant uh, uh, opportunity we had to uh, interview him. I really, I'm happy we did it. I He's fascinating. It. Oh yes, I enjoyed it greatly. And of course, Mike, we are running out of time here, and we re- we will return rather on Thursday. The freight train sure. is here, Jim Fetzer. Oh yes, the freight train. Are you ready for that, Mike? Yeah, I'll just turn my microphone off. You, you just, just gonna, go with it. You're just gonna <laughs> mute yourself. I, I might just mute myself too. <laughs> just hand the show over. Might as well. <laughs> Let him take over. Oh, brother. Oh, I love Jim. He's Indeed. A, he's a good guy. He, he brings he it out. Well. He means well. He, he brings it all out and he lets it all out. And that's what I like. He sure does. Gotta love that. So, Mike, definitely say a good night and, and plug anything you'd like before we shut this shit down. Thank you, sir. Uh, thank you, Mr. Michael Deacon, for uh, having the show tonight and having Michael and myself on and blah, blah, blah. If anybody is interested, uh, I will be having some new T-shirt designs as well nice. as other merchandise coming up this week on my um, on my music website and my art website. My music website is Mike Hideous at 
uh, sorry, MikeHideous.com, and that's M-Y-K-E. And my art website is HorribleArtwork.com. And as I said, I got new T-shirt designs that are coming out probably next week, but they're going to be worked on to be on the websites by probably Monday, fingers crossed. So uh, look for them. If you want to get in touch with me, you can also reach me at Facebook.com slash Hideous. Mike, and that's M-Y-K-E. Thank you, Mr. Deacon. I had a great night. Very nice. I'll talk to you soon. All right, brother. Thanks, everybody, everyone, for listening. See you on Thursday. Take care. And there he goes, the co-host, the one and only Mr. Mike Hideous. And, of course, if you have not subscribed to the YouTube channel, don't forget to do so. And, of course, if you want to take us out on the road with you, that's if you are driving, and oil prices drop below zero for the first time in history and you have an aux cable definitely download the podcast rendition of this program on itunes stitcher and of course Castbox and spotify international listeners out there thank you so much for your support and we will return thursday with the freight train jim fetzer now As I like to say, there's nothing more frightening than reality. I hope you all well out there, wherever you may be, on this island earth. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, 